Well, good morning, everyone. Delighted to be able to speak to you from God's Word this morning. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to our hearts as you did to the Virgin Mary, renewing our faith in and our joyful obedience to what you now will be saying to us. 20th century Christians sometimes have a problem with this story of the Annunciation by Gabriel to Mary. Well, Father Malcolm, what is the problem? Don't we love this story, you might reply? We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We're not skeptics who can't believe the gospel and can't believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. How can you say that we have a problem with Gabriel's annunciation? Well, I do say it, and the problem is this. Too often we sentimentalize the story and in so doing, misunderstand its main point. Now, we may blame Hallmark cards for some of it, all those precious pictures of Mary in the manger with the shining shepherds and the wealthy wise men, we pay most attention to what Gabriel said first to Mary and not what he said last. I'm going to say that again. We pay most attention to what Gabriel first said to Mary and not what he said last. He first said, listen, you will conceive in your womb and will have a son and you will call his name Jesus. But the culmination, the climax, the summit of his message is this. And he shall reign over the throne of David his father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. Now, of course, this is not to say that the beginning, his God-given conception is not important. Jesus could not have come to reign and rule in the world other than being born into this world as a baby and rule the world. As John put it so memorably in the gospel for every Christmas day, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten son of God. This young girl responded to Gabriel's announcement with faith and with a quiet heroism. Let it be to me according to your word. And we rightly highly honor her now by calling her the mother of God and the blessed Virgin Mary. And of course, in doing so, we are just fulfilling what she herself predicted in her song of praise we call the Magnificat. She said, he has regarded the lower state of his handmaiden for behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now the sermon for today will center on the angel Gabriel's message to Mary in the opening chapter of Luke's gospel, verses 30 to 35. And it will end with her astonishing reply in verse 38. 
So I begin with what we pay attention to most. The conception in the virgin womb of Mary without the aid of her betrothed husband, Joseph. And many of you will know only Matthew and Luke of the four gospel writers give us their very different accounts of Jesus' conception and birth. Matthew's story is all about Joseph and his big problem with Mary being found with child of the Holy Spirit. And of course, about his subsequent care, his faithful care for her. Luke's account, on the other hand, centers on Mary and her understandable bafflement of how she could conceive any child without the aid of Joseph. Bishop Tom Wright says well that people have read into the story all sorts of things that aren't there and have failed to notice some of the really important things that are there. Here are some examples. Many people today think that since Mary and Joseph didn't know about X and Y chromosomes, they would have had less difficulty believing in the story. And it's true that even as late as the time of Martin Luther, everyone believed that the male seed was sufficient by itself to generate new life. It wasn't until a little later, a Catholic priest and professor of anatomy at the University of Padua in northern Italy, by the name of Gabriel Fallopio, discovered the tubes named for him, tubes that convey an egg to a woman's womb. Mary and Joseph knew none of this, but they did know, as all of course all of us do, that babies result from sexual intercourse. Now it's also true that Matthew, neither Matthew nor Luke say that Mary remained a virgin after Jesus' birth. That idea came much later. Scripture says elsewhere that Jesus had brothers and sisters and the author of the book of James was one of them. Furthermore, nowhere do either of them say that virginity is a morally better condition than marriage. And none of them say that Jesus was any less human because he was conceived without a human father. Bishop Wright sums this all up like this. They are not denigrating sex, women, conception, or birth. They are simply reporting that Jesus did not have a father in the ordinary way, and that this was because Mary had been given a special grace to be the mother of God's incarnate self. Mary is the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable in any other way. Mary has heard Gabriel say that her son Jesus will be a great man and will be called the son of the Most High. No doubt she first said to herself, well, that's all very well, but how will this happen? I'm still a virgin. And so she tells Gabriel outright, how can this be true? I'm still a virgin. 
King Gabriel does his best to make what he has just said clearer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, he continues, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child who is born from you will be called God's son. At first, this looked to me like a double explanation. Is Gabriel just repeating himself for emphasis? Is he indulging in a typical example of Hebrew parallelism that we see so often in the Psalms? He's emphasizing that God is the father of this son, not Joseph. Well, all that's true, but perhaps he's saying something more. God, the Holy Spirit, will cause a child to be conceived in Mary's womb. But at the same time, God, the Creator, will surround her with his sovereign power. Or to put it in a different way, the same creative God who loved everything into existence, the galaxies, the sun and the moon, the land and the sea, all protozoa and all pythons is now entering into our human history in just this baby. Or to put it in yet another way, the God who made us for himself, who loved us into existence, comes to us now as this baby in Mary's womb, a human being just like every one of us. And not just that, but he comes to love us with a tenacity. And I won't ever let you go love. Never seen in anyone else ever before. Unique son of God. Unique in the depth and the length, the tenacity of his love for us. We come now to the last part perhaps the most important part of Gabriel's announcement to Mary. We come to the high point of what he said. He, this Jesus, shall reign over the throne of David, his father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. The most important reality in Gabriel's announcement is the royal and political meaning he and Luke give to the whole event. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God promised King David a descendant, an heir who would reign forever and not just over Israel, but over the whole world. Here's a good example. Nathan the prophet tells King David, that God will establish his kingdom forever through a later son. I will, God says, be his father and he shall be my son. But you might say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus refer, refuse all attempts by his adoring followers to make him a king? He did, and for at least two reasons. First and most importantly, he knew he was already a king, a king over all kings like Herod, all governors like Pilate, all emperors like Caesar Augustus. And he knew himself to be not just king of Israel, but of all the nations. All that existed then 
and all that will exist later. At his trial, Jesus made clear, this very clear, in his answer to Governor Pilate's question. So you're a king then? And Jesus replied, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. King Jesus is head over all Pilate's and Caesar's then, and over all presidents and prime ministers now. He is sovereign everywhere and always. And furthermore, his supremacy is not just over earthly powers, but over supernatural ones as well. St. Peter writes that all angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. And that includes all fallen angels, all devils like C.S. Lewis's screw tape and wormwood. Oh yes, they're still active to be sure, no doubt about that. Greatly loved boys and girls abducted and killed in their schools in Nigeria. Holy virginal innocence violated like some of the women now cared for at places like Amira House in Beverly. Pensioners, life savings stolen by anonymous internet fraud. All these are satanically inspired cruelty. But your days are numbered, Satan. Jesus the King has trampled you under his feet and crushed you like a poisonous spider. In moving to a close, we might ask ourselves what? In the meantime, the time between Jesus' first coming and his final coming, we must do. Now, concluding a sermon like this is no place to even begin to sketch a program of how to battle the distressing social issues I just mentioned. But what I can do and now will do is offer some broad principles, very briefly. Principles that Christians like you, my patient hearers, must keep up front in your thinking about social issues like racial and economic inequality, poverty, war, sexual relations, and more. The four I will offer are far from a complete list, but they're a good start. They will, they will hardly be new to most of you, but like our hearing of the Ten Commandments, we all need and benefit from constant reminders. First then, a selfish motive in any, a selfish motive in any and all circumstances is always wrong. And its opposite, an altruistic motive, is always right. All selfish motives are self-interested, but not all self-interested motives are selfish. If you break your arm, it is in your self-interest to have it attended to, but that desire isn't selfish. But a man forcing himself on a woman, that is selfish and pure evil. Second, there is no discrimination of inferiority for any race or ethnic group in God's eyes, and there must be none in ours. The Uyghurs in China, African Americans and native Indians here must always have their humanity honored. 
and not just in words, which we offer too often, without deeds. Our pastor emphasized this in his recent letter to all of us, and I quote, I've called us to listen to our brothers and sisters of color in order to love them well and know who Jesus is through their experience. Third, every person has been created in the image of God and each has an equal right to the fullest realization of his or her powers of mind and body. Fourth, it follows from this that every human life in the womb and out of it is not just to be preserved, but nurtured by care of the body, education of the mind, and redemption of the whole person. Now much more should be said, and perhaps will be said at another time, but if we pay scrupulous attention to these in all our words, but even more in our actions, we will not only be better people and better Christians, but we will know much more joy in our hearts. It has often been observed that Mary's song, The Magnificat, is the most revolutionary document in history because she understands the full meaning of Gabriel's announcement. Her son and he alone will bring about the complete reversal of the values of this world. It's not the proud, not the mighty ones, not the rich who have the last word. Now, everywhere and always, they trample the meek, the weak, and the poor. But the divine dynamite, the holy and mighty one who exploded into this world through Mary's womb, reversed all of that. Through the holy child she births, the world will be redeemed, and indeed, in a certain future, the whole cosmos will be renewed and restored. But speaking of her womb, by the way, let all males like me respect and honor the hallowedness of every woman's womb, consecrated as each of them are to the conception and the first growth of every precious life. This is the last Sunday in Advent and Christmas beckons. And in moving there, we must hear again Mary's response to Gabriel's daunting announcement. Like Zechariah in the previous story, she too questioned him. But unlike Zechariah's muddled and faithless response for which he was struck dumb, Mary answers with humble obedience and with a quiet heroism. She does so in words that have sounded down the years. Here I am, the Lord's servant girl. Let it be to me as you have said. Glory be to the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit.